Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we ask the question, what keeps you going? Obviously, if the world is pressing in on every side, if the temptation to compromise is strong, if the pressures and burdens of life are heavy, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to grow discouraged. It's easy to want to give up. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says twice, we faint not. In verse 1, therefore seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not. And then in verse 16, for which cause we faint not. And that expression, we faint not, means we do not lose heart. I wonder if there's anyone here today who is losing heart. Anyone who feels that you're sliding down the slippery slope into the slough of despond. You know, life is not a walk in the park, is it? When you're carefree as a youth, you don't realize all of the dangers and the pressures and the disappointments that there are, but it doesn't take long as you reach adulthood before you realize that life is challenging. It hurts. It's hard. There are broken dreams and promises. There are disappointments along the way. There are medical, physical problems and emotional struggles and relational stresses. There's not a one of us who will escape out of this world without having some problems. Jesus said, in the world, you shall have tribulation. And I think the shell in John 16:33 is just as real as the shell in Matthew 1:21. He shall save his people from their sins. We love that verse. But just as sure, you will have problems in this world. No one is an exception. And therefore, it's important that we not live under an optical illusion and think that life will be hassle-free and trouble-free. <laughs> If you think that you're going to make it through this life without having any problems, you're sadly mistaken. You know, the person that walks out in the morning to get in his or her automobile and sees that the tire is flat and says, why me? Well, it happens to everybody. Don't be surprised, my friends, when you have problems in life. Don't expect a hassle-free and trouble-free and pain-free existence. And I dare say that because the problems and pressures of life are relentless, I mean, they never stop, it's easy to lose heart. But the Lord calls upon us to persevere, to endure, to keep going. And I want to ask this morning, what keeps you going? Well, the Apostle Paul had every reason to lose heart. The man who wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you turn forward to the 11th chapter... Listen to what he says about his life and ministry in the 24th verse. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes save one. Now, can you imagine the authorities on five different occasions giving you 40 stripes save one, 39 whip marks across your back? 
The Apostle Paul says, this happened to me on five different occasions. Of the Jews, five times, I received 40 stripes, save one. That's 195 lashes across his back. That would not be a pleasant experience. And why did he endure this? For preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. His fellow countrymen, the Jews, did this to him. Then he says, thrice I was beaten with rods. Not only did he have the cat of nine tails across his back, but uh, on three different occasions, he was beaten or caned with rods. Once I was stoned. You have an account of that in the Acts of the Apostles. When they threw rocks at him and left him outside the city dead. He said, thrice I suffered shipwreck. Now that would be horrifying to me to be in the middle of the uh, sea and for your ship to go down. Paul says that happened to me on three occasions. You have one episode of that in the 27th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, and it is a hair-raising experience. He says, a night and a day I've been in the deep. Can you imagine clinging to a piece of driftwood hundreds of miles off the coast in the middle of the ocean? All night, all day, he says, I spent a whole night and a whole day in the deep. In journeyings often, that is, he was constantly on the move, in perils of waters, perils means dangers, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, wherever I turned, I had dangers. Social pressures, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, it didn't matter whether I was in town or in the country, he said I had dangers, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to be rejected, to be an outcast, he says, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, that is, staying up all night, in hunger and thirst, without food to sustain his body, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I mean, you think about living as a prisoner in a dungeon, cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, he says, that is, all of these circumstantial pressures and adversities, he says, I have an incessant, relentless, internal burden, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now, the Holy Ghost has made me overseer of one church. And sometimes the pressures of pastoral ministry of one church are heavy. I can imagine what it would be to be responsible for all the churches. The apostle is thinking about the health of the Corinthians and the Thessalonians and the churches in Galatia, and the Ephesians, and the Philippians, and the Colossians. And he's writing letters to them. The Jewish contingency who have converted to Christ outside of Jerusalem, that's no doubt the target audience of the book of Hebrews. Paul is an apostle, and he says, I have the pressure of all the churches upon my heart. And he asks the question, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? That is... The apostle says, I have every reason in the world to lose heart. Now, when I read a list like this, it makes me realize that I've never really suffered at all, comparatively speaking. I mean, somebody went to sleep in one of my sermons one time. That's about the extent of the persecution I've endured. <laughs> but Paul says, everywhere I turn, I have opposition. I have dangers. I have all of these pressures, both outwardly and inwardly. 
You know, even in the Corinthian situation, we took our text from 2 Corinthians. If you read 1 Corinthians, you will see that there was a contingency in the church at Corinth that was very critical of Paul. Now, Paul was like the rest of us, thoroughly human, and I'm sure he wanted people to receive him and appreciate him, not to be critical, not to find fault with him, but there was a group in the church at Corinth who questioned his apostolic authority. They said he's not truly genuine. And the apostle, therefore, had people who really didn't like him. I think each one of us, if we're realistic, would admit today that you can't go too far in life before you meet some people who really don't like you. And that's always puzzled me, that somebody wouldn't like me, but I realize that there are people out there who don't like me. Jesus said that we should expect that. Woe unto you, he said, if all men speak well of you. The old preacher said, if you're not drawing some bugs, that may be proof your light's not on. If your light's on, you're going to have some bugs flying around. Criticism, though, is not pleasant, is it? Who likes to be criticized? I don't. But I know it's part and parcel of gospel ministry. It's part and parcel of being alive. Any, if you do anything, then you're going to get some opposition. The turtle never would get anywhere if he didn't stick his neck out. And the person who says, I don't want people to dislike me, so I'm not going to say anything or do anything, will never really accomplish anything. If we're going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Criticism is inevitable, but yet it still stings. So Paul had all of these dangers and perils and privations, and he had criticism from the Corinthians, and then the devil was constantly undermining his ministry. Look at verse 4 of the passage that we took as a text today, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He said, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, and now who's that? Little g, that's the devil. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Paul says, when I preach, Satan is at work trying to undermine the success of the gospel message. He's trying to undercut the work that I do. He says, if my gospel is hid, it's not hidden because we're trying to keep it hidden. He said, if it's hid, it's hidden to those who are lost. Now, obviously, everybody doesn't understand the true gospel. Isn't that right? God has many children in this world whose minds are blinded. It's as if they can't see. You try to explain to them that salvation is by grace and grace alone, and they just can't seem to process it. It's like their brain's not functioning. It's like their mind has been blinded. And the reason that's true, Paul says, is because not that there's anything at fault in the gospel itself, and it's not that they're not children of God necessarily. He said God has children out here who may not be able to process and grasp and believe the truth, but he said it's because where we're preaching the truth, the devil is at work to confuse the issue. He's out there, isn't he, dear friends? And he is sowing tares everywhere the Lord sows wheat. And that will be true until the end of time. We wish we could expunge the world of false doctrine. He says, brethren, if you try to do that, you will root up the wheat with the tares. He says, leave them alone until the harvest comes. At the end of time, the Lord will sort it all out. But while we're in this world, my beloved, as the parable of the wheat and the tares indicates, 
we must expect to have opposition. We must expect that the church and the kingdom of God will be met in opposition by the kingdom of darkness. And that wherever we try to proclaim the truth and sow the good seed of the kingdom, the enemy will attempt to sow lies and falsehoods and heresies. And we see it, my friends. There are people who've been so indoctrinated by the university system, by evolution, by a Darwinian theory of origins, that their mind is closed to the first chapter of Genesis. And if you say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, immediately they shut the door and they won't even listen. Their minds have been blinded so that they cannot see the truth. The enemy is very crafty, isn't he? I wish I could tell you that this world is still the Garden of Eden. It's a paradise, but I'll tell you the old serpent, my friends, has invaded paradise. And he has sown his pears again where the Lord has sown wheat. And the apostle said that the God of this world is presenting obstacles where the Lord has given opportunities. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine unto them. I wish everybody could understand what I understand. Don't you wish all of God's children would believe salvation by grace? Would come out from the bondage of conditionalism, legalism, thinking that they have to do something in order to go to heaven, that they have to help the Lord, that somehow he didn't quite get it done, but the preacher can help him. Don't you wish that God's people could find the freedom that is in the truth of salvation by sovereign grace alone? If you know the truth, it will make you free. And I have a joy and a peace that passes understanding because of my trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, the old devil is out there. And that's reason enough to say after a while, I just don't feel like we're making any progress. I'm losing heart. I think I'll give up. What keeps you going? The apostle had all of these pressures. He had all of these criticisms from the people in the church, and he faced Satan's deceptions. He had conflicts within and conflicts without, externally and internally, as chapter 7, verse 5 says, without were fightings and within were fears. And I want you to notice how realistic he is in verses 8 and 9. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Now here's a sequence of parallelisms, contrasting couplets. Notice the first part of each of these. We're troubled on every side. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are cast down. Now, each of these couplets has a positive dimension. We're troubled, but we're not distressed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're cast out, but we're not destroyed. I love the positive side, but notice how realistic he is in the negative you see, Christianity is not an optical illusion. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's not an escape from reality. Somebody says, you Christians, you believers in the Bible, are people who just escape from reality and you go off into never, never land. No, my beloved, it's rooted in realism. The apostle says we are troubled. He admits life is hard. He says we are perplexed. I have questions. Have you ever been perplexed? You know, I see the injustices in the world, and it troubles me. It perplexes me. I say, why do the wicked prosper? Why do nice guys seem to always finish last? You know, why is truth on the scaffold and wrong seems to be on the throne? Indeed, my friends, there are perplexities. There's healthy realism here. 
Somebody asked me, Brother Goins, are you a pessimist or an optimist? Well, I'm a, I'm a realist. <laughs> the pessimist says the glass is half empty. The optimist says the glass is half full. The realist says there's water in the glass. I'm a realist. I can handle reality. If you'll just give it to me straight, I can process it. It may knock me off my feet for a moment, but I can handle it realistically. Paul was a realist. Jesus is a realist. He said, in the world you shall have tribulations. But notice he says, but be of good cheer. Cheer up. So how can I cheer up if I'm going to have trouble? He says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's healthy Christian realism, isn't it? Paul says, we're troubled, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're cast down, but we're not forsaken, we're not in despair, we're not in distress, we're not destroyed. So Paul had every reason to lose heart, yet he kept going. Why? I think if we will see what kept Paul going, it may help you and me to keep going. First of all, he was conscious of God's rich mercy. Verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. As we have received mercy, we faint not. What will keep you going in life, dear friends? To be conscious of God's rich mercy. You say, well, where do I see God's mercy first? In the fact that he has regenerated you, that you've been saved personally by the work of God's spirit in the new birth. You've been born again. That's what verse 6 is talking about in our text when he says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, the same God who created the universe as it's recorded in Genesis 1-1, hath shined in our hearts. The same God who said, Let there be light in the morning of time, said, Let there be light in my experience when he awakened me from nature's dark death and brought me to a glorious Life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know what this verse is teaching us about the new birth? It's teaching us that it's a creation. It is just as much a work of divine creation as the original creation of the universe you know, we don't believe in evolution in a natural sense. And my beloved, we don't believe in evolution in a spiritual sense. You don't grow into becoming a child of God. Somebody says, if you will just do a few good works and if you will hold out and hold on, and then after a little while, you will develop into being one of God's children. My beloved, when God is pleased to make someone his child, he does it instantly. He does it directly. It's a work of divine creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, says Ephesians 2.10. And Paul says that that's due to nothing short of the mercy of God. Do you know why God would quicken you or me or change my heart from death in sin to life in Jesus Christ? It's not because I deserve it, because I've merited it, or because I'm a good person. It's because of mercy alone that he would do that. Ephesians 2.4 says, but God who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us. And mercy means that you didn't deserve it. And that you actually deserve the very opposite of it. And he has withheld judgment upon you and had mercy upon you instead. That's the only reason any of us are ever saved. If you can just remember God's rich mercy to you, it will keep you from giving up, from losing heart. We faint not as we've received mercy. Not only mercy and regeneration, but mercy 
in the privilege of preaching the gospel. Paul says, we have received this ministry according to the mercy of God, we faint not, for we preach not ourselves. Verse 5, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Notice the apostle was not interested in promoting himself. His ministry was not about making a name for Paul. He was not motivated by personal ambition. He says, my gospel is focused on Christ alone. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. I'm not trying to showcase my intelligence. I'm not trying to put on display my charisma. I'm not trying to work for personal popularity. The apostle wasn't interested in building a legacy to his ministry. The apostle says, my one goal is to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, what I do say about myself, if I do talk about the ministry, it's simply to teach you that I'm your servant for Jesus' sake. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We're only here to help you to see Jesus. That's what a preacher's job description is. My beloved, what a privilege it is to proclaim the glorious gospel. You see it in verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we faint not. Paul says, God shined in my heart, but he's also given me a task to perform. And he says, what a mercy it is that I've been called to proclaim this glorious message. Verse 7, he calls it a treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this treasure in our hearts. You know what the gospel message is, dear friends? It's not a burden, it's a treasure. And if you know it, you're rich. Just as surely as if you had treasure in a safe deposit box or found buried treasure, if you've been blessed to see the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, what a mercy that is. And what a mercy it is to proclaim it. What an honor it is to lift up the glorious name of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything happier anything I'd rather do than to herald the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You say, well, it's just because you like to talk. No, it's not about me. We preach not ourselves. My beloved, I have a glorious subject. Somebody asked me, how did you do preaching last Sunday? I said, not very good, but I had a great subject. Had a great theme. And as long as I'm preaching Christ, I have a great theme. Right? If you can leave here and saying not, boy, Brother Mike was on fire today, but saying what a glorious Savior we have, I'll be happy. Because my one goal is to increase your opinion of him and to paint him in as high and lifted up terms as possible. And then not only was he conscious of God's rich mercy, but he knew the source of his strength. That's why he didn't give up. Now, what keeps you going? You say, Brother Goins, I don't have the problems Paul had, but I've got my share. And I'm losing heart, and I feel that I'm struggling to just keep on keeping on. I'm tired, I'm fatigued. How can I keep going? Well, has God been merciful to you? Think about his mercy. Don't lose sight of his rich mercy in saving you, in giving you tasks to perform, in teaching you the gospel, and even his daily mercies. Did you know his mercies are new every morning? According to Lamentations 3.22, Tomorrow morning when you wake up, he'll have a new, fresh supply of mercy to help you that day. You say, oh, Brother Goins, every day just gets worse and worse. No, every morning you have a new supply of strength for that day. That's his promise. And if you and I are going to be conscious of divine mercy, that requires an attitude of humility. For the person who doesn't see himself to be a sinner is not going to see God's blessings as a mercy. 
If you have a profound sense of your personal unworthiness, my beloved, it will help you to appreciate God's mercy. But secondly, Paul knew the source of his strength. Verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That is, this gospel understanding, he says, is housed in a physical body, an earthen vessel that is weak. But God chose men to preach this message for this purpose, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. On what power did Paul depend to keep going? He depended on the power of Christ's resurrection. And you see that thought developed in verses 10 to 12 as he says, We always bear about in our bodies the dying or the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. In other words, when I'm weak, then I'm really strong because I'm serving a living Savior and Redeemer. My beloved, never lose sight of the fact that you have a living Savior. Jesus is not still in a grave somewhere. He was raised from the dead. He was a victor over death. And because of that, resurrection power is at your disposal and mine every day that we live. You talk about something that will make you tough-minded, where you can say, I'm troubled, but I'm not distressed. I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm cast down, but I'm not destroyed. That's mental toughness. That's realism. And that's somebody that says, I'm not going to let the problems that I face cause me to lose heart because I have a living Savior. This truth will give you courage and conviction to be able to say, as he says in verse 13, I believed and therefore have I spoken. You know, I don't just preach to give myself something to do. The reason I preach is because I truly believe what I'm preaching. I believe, therefore have I spoken. Somebody says, you're really wise if you have doubts. Well, I have a lot of doubts, but I don't doubt the integrity of this book. I don't doubt the reality of my Savior. I don't doubt the sufficiency of His grace. I don't doubt the gospel, my beloved. I'm as convinced today as I am that I'm standing here that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died in the stead of His people, and that He came back from the dead, that He's alive in heaven and He's coming again someday. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I believe it. I really believe what we preach here. It's not still in question for me. Now, I do have a lot of questions, a lot of verses I don't understand. But I'll tell you, I believe the core truths of our faith. I'm convinced of them. And I want to speak from that conviction. I believe, therefore, by spoken, because I have a living Savior. What keeps you going? Well, I have a noble calling. And I'm trusting in the power of the risen Christ. Paul says, furthermore, I'm aware of the purpose of my life and ministry. Verse 15, he says, for all things are for your sakes. That is, what happens to me is intended to teach you a lesson that you may, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. The purpose of my life and ministry is the glory of God. So what kept Paul going? The mercy of God, the power of God, and the glory of God. One more thing, the hope of heaven. Verses 17 and 18. And these verses would be appropriate for you to meditate on this next week. For our light affliction. Stop right there. Have you ever had any of those? Minor surgery, somebody said, is what happens to the other guy. <laughs> if it's you, it's major, right? right? Afflictions are not light. Somebody were to say today, preacher, I'm having this problem with my health. And I'll say, well, that's a light affliction. You'd say, how dare you? It's heavy. It hurts. I'm scared. 
It doesn't appear light on the surface, does it? Your medical problems, your family difficulties, your struggle against anxiety and fear. You say, Brother Mike, these burdens are heavy. But Paul says they're light in comparison to what is waiting for us one day. Listen to this. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, your problems right now are just temporary. This too shall pass. That's right. Whatever you're going through right now, it's not going to be there forever. It's not eternal. This too shall pass for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. It's temporary. It's light. Worketh for us. You say, my problems are against me. Well, he says they could, if you'll improve upon them, if they're sanctified to your benefit, then you can learn valuable lessons from them. He says they work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight. Of glory. Do you see the contrast in this verse between something light and something weighty? Light affliction, weight of glory. That is, if you put these two on the scales, would your problems right now be heavier than what is awaiting you someday in heaven? No, he says, once you get to heaven, you'll forget all about the problems of this life. They're weighty compared to the problems right now. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal. What's waiting for us is not for a moment, it's eternal. Weight of glory. And that word weight simply speaks of something heavy, something substantive. There are so many people in our world today that think religion is, again, an escape from reality. Something superficial. Now we can make it superficial, but this isn't cotton candy that we're talking about this morning, my beloved. It's not just a little band-aid for your problems. This is something that is real and substantive. It's weighty. As the old flower children used to say in the 1960s, it's heavy, man. It's heavy. Eternal weight of glory. Heaven is real. It won't be long before the sufferings of this present time will be swallowed up into insignificance in lieu of the glory that is awaiting us in heaven. Just one glimpse of him in glory will what? It will more than all the toils of life repay. Somebody once said, after just 10 seconds in heaven, we'll be ashamed that we ever complained. I think that's true. You'll forget all about your problems, your disappointments. So what keeps you going? Remember the hope of heaven. It's real, my beloved. While you look at the things that are not seen, you can say that afflictions are light, and they're just for a moment. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The apostle was a preacher. He was a minister. What kept him going in ministry, though he had all of these pressures and problems? He was conscious of God's mercy. He was trusting in God's power, the power of a risen, living Savior. He was living for God's glory. And he lived in the prospect of heavenly peace. For heaven was real to him. That will keep you going and me as well. Though we, like the Hebrews in Babylon, face so many pressures to conform, so many burdens, so many temptations, my beloved, you can keep going faithful to your Lord all the way to the finish line if you'll remember God's mercy, God's power, God's glory, and the reality of God's home in heaven. That's your home as well. The truth will set you free.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.